Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And this is the episode about replayability in games. Today's episode is a what we talk about episode. We're, we're going to talk about all about replayability. Recently, we talked about our most played games of all time as a sort of exploratory conversation leading up to this. We also talked about uh, and did a deep dive of Santa Monica, a game in which we ended up mostly talking about variability, which will play into this discussion. So we've been building over the course of the last half month or so to this milestone fingers crossed what we talk about episode about replayability i think we're going to talk about different factors that can increase the game's replayability if replayability even matters how to gimmicks factor into this what the differences are between replayable games and good games and a whole bunch more uh, so this might be a winding sweeping conversation like a lot of our what we talk about but there's a lot on the list oh also we might talk about video games we'll see yeah if if we have room for it i think that would be a fun one too because video games are things that are culturally just played and replayed so much so i think there are potentially some really interesting insights there to get into i'm really excited for this conversation uh i think it'll be a good one uh and one hopefully that will fuel even more robust discussion and conversation in our discord so if listening to this episode sparks any thoughts for you We'd love it if you would hop into our Discord and contribute to the conversation because this show at its best is an opportunity for us to all learn from each other about games, board games, video games, and the decisions in them. And if you want to do that, you can find a link to our Discord in our show notes or on decisionspacepodcast.com. But now, let's just do it, Jake. Straight into it. Let's define replayability. You know, it's hard to do it without like using the term in it, but yeah, yeah. I feel like replayability is just like a game that gets played again. <laughs> you know mm, what I sure. mean? Like it has to have some kind of actual practical. It's not enough just to want to play a game. I think mm. it has to be a game that you're actually playing a game that actually demands to be played many times. That okay, so is the mark many? of a replayable game. I think that's impossible to answer. I think okay. many is going to be, you know, just dependent on any person, right? Maybe somebody who has uh, a thousand games, yeah. you know, playing 10 is at the end of their bell curve, like an outlier game. for replayability versus somebody who has three games and is playing all of those all the time, you know? Yeah. I feel like I feel like a replayable game is like a game that is an outlier for you and your gaming habits. I think also as we were sort of thinking through as I was writing these notes for the show and kind of trying to think through playing things out, I thought about this question a little bit, Jake. And I think that it also is depends on the opportunity cost of the game itself, right? So like a game that takes four hours, the opportunity cost of replaying it is higher. So what counts as replayable for that is going to be fewer plays in terms of like, this is a really replayable game. It's an experience I want to have multiple times right. versus a game that takes 20 minutes. If, right? you, if you play, shoot, what's uh, Twilight Imperium? Yeah, if you yeah, play yeah. Twilight Imperium twice a year, every year, like that is an extremely replayable game to you, in yeah. my opinion, because you're setting aside an entire afternoon yep. or maybe afternoon and evening 
twice a year just to have this one experience, right? You're going out of your way to curate that experience. Yep. And I had, as a working definition, a game that players can play multiple times or repeatedly without tiring of the experience of playing it. And I think for me, the without tiring is an important aspect of this, right? Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I have to... For a game that feels real playable to me, I'm motivated to go out and continue to play it. And there's aspects of experiencing the game that no matter if I've played it one time or 10 times or 50 times, leave me wanting more and leave me wanting to come back to it. And okay, one other question. I don't think this is in terms of all media, right? Like movies can be replayable because we can watch movies multiple times you click Books. play again yeah yeah like yeah. I, I you know people i don't think this is a unique thing to games people read novels multiple times and yeah you, you and click you, play again on the audiobook on the audiobook right right yeah <laughs> but you you understand it and appreciate it on a deeper level and i think that board games are similar but i would argue that board games within our culture or games in general have a there's this understanding in film or in in literature that you could just read a book once and appreciate how wonderful of a text it is or watch a movie once and appreciate just how phenomenal of a movie it is even though you could re-experience those experiences multiple times and even get more out of it a second time second in time. those mediums but there's this perception within how we consume board games that replayability is even more important to game experiences than those other media experiences so i don't really know if i have more to say about that right now but i just think that that's interesting that in terms of how we can as consumers of art and of media where there's something unique about games to some extent in the way that we talk about them culturally where we value replayability a little more a little greater than we do in terms of those other types of media. I agree. I think that's a really interesting thought and it makes me think of music too, mm, uh, sure. where, you know, replayability is huge there. You know, I, I think most people who are fans of an artist, right. They don't listen to Dang, a I new listened album. To the white album once. It yeah. was so good. <laughs> I, yeah. I yeah. feel like I, I had my white album experience uh, <laughs> and then I moved on to my, to the next uh, album. Yep. You know, I wonder if it is just a function of time. You know, it Mm. takes a lot longer to read a book, read a book than it does to play most games and most Mm -hmm. books and most games. Movies are kind of, but then movies, you know, that's equivalent to a game time. But I I think you're right. It doesn't feel like replayability matters as much in that medium as it does in some others. And then perhaps, and then video games, it kind of straddles the line more where it's like a narrative game, like a triple a narrative game. I feel like you play it and that's kind of what you're expected to do. Like a, the last of us and then versus like you know we talk a lot about fighting games or like competitive games sure tetris whatever that people are i i was listening to candy crush play like one level of candy crush (laughs) (laughs) i'm done i was listening to a podcast about tetris today and i'm so glad it came up because i think tetris is one of the most eminently replayable video games ever made so maybe we'll talk about that later yeah and so I think, anyway, I think you're right to hone in on narrative as being a key difference, right? Like music doesn't often have a strong narrative or, or it's not the reason why we're necessarily drawn to music, right? Right. It's, it's evoking a feeling. It's evoking a sense of a state of being just like board games are evoking an experience or an agency, or it's about a puzzle. Whereas maybe with books, 
with literature and with film. It's more about the narrative experience. So you can read it once or watch it once and kind of get the gist of it. And then if you want to go back, there's other reasons too. Last thought on music, like with albums, yeah. you, I find myself will listen to albums that I really like and are interested in in a narrative way first, right? I'll mm. listen to the album, but then I'll pick and choose and go back to like the most replayable tracks totally. more often than not. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I think narrative is a key thing with replayability. And I don't think as we get into our board game discussion about replayability, uh, probably narrative games are going to come to the top of our list for fulfilling some of the characteristics that we think make a game more replayable. Yeah, agreed. Okay, Jake, let's pivot. Let's get into the the nitty gritty here a little bit and just talk about factors that can increase a game's replayability. And to my, I've grouped this into six different core categories, many of which are inspired by this, excuse me, many of which are inspired by this awesome blog post on BoardGameGeek from Tony Faber called What Makes Games Replayable and Does It Matter If They Are? Uh, on Tony Faber's blog, The Secrets of Great Games. So I just want to mention that at the start because I found it tremendously helpful in terms of structuring the notes here. Uh, and the first one I think is really important and it's also the most basic. So you just need to say it and get it out of the way. Games that have automatic decisions are just less replayable than games that don't have automatic decisions. So what we mean by that, right, is if you play a game once or twice and all of a sudden it's easy to make all the decisions in the game, the heuristics are obvious, there's not a lot of randomness in the game, there's not a lot of variability, it, the game starts to play itself, that's not going to hold your attention for that long. Agreed. And I think it speaks to the really important part of your definition about playing repeatedly without getting tired of it, because mm -hmm. many of us have played a lot of tic-tac-toe in our lives when right. we were kids. Maybe the same with Connect Four or, or a game like that. Um, and so just because you've played it a lot doesn't necessarily mean it's the greatest, most replayable game because most of us, and no shit, you know what? I, I don't want to yuck your yum. If you love Connect Four to this day and love playing it with kids, that's awesome. But I think most people play Connect Four at a certain point in their life and then they move on to other games that yeah. they'd be more interested in playing. Yep. Totally. And I think there's other cultural reasons outside of enjoying the game experience itself that we do that. Which I think is an important distinction to make because that says that there's something about replayability beyond just playing something many times. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes. You know, totally. there's something else there. I have here too, Jake, that even some Euro games, which aren't speculative enough, could fall into this category, right? Where you're just... It's purely an optimization puzzle. I think eventually can just start to be like, oh, I could just sit down and, and solve the puzzle of this game. And then I kind of have a sense for what it basically, it plays itself. I don't need to be here. The right decisions are obvious. So I don't need to make them, right? Like I, it's more interesting to play a game when you have to make judgment calls than it is when you don't. Okay, and I think can, that, yeah. Yeah, what games come to mind? You can't say something like that without giving at least an example or two. It's, it's one game that comes to mind, despite me playing it a lot, is Villagers eventually. Okay. I feel like got to a point for me, Jake, where I felt like the decisions started to feel kind of automatic just based on the options available to, to you at any given point in that game. I think Can't Stop does not fall into this category for me because there's moments where you have to take these incredible risks that are really fun. There's just, just like a very fun game, but ultimately Can't Stop. I think there's like a, a worse version of Can't Stop that feels like 
totally boring and there's no speculation right and you just right. have, like have forced decisions but can't stop is not it's like eminently replayable yeah, a game wonderful. a game like can't stop or claim it just with mm-hmm. the act the decisions you make without the push your luck aspect definitely yeah. would fall into that where it's like i can make an optimal placement it's just the actual game is deciding whether to try to make another place totally and i think that's an important I, I this is i'm really glad we're talking about this right now during this like automatic decisions factor in part because i think that can't stop's almost an example of like can't stop is replayable because it's really fun to to make risky decisions and then to have them work more so than it's interesting to make difficult decisions and have them play out right like nothing it can't stop is all that difficult of a decision often it's just sort of like it's just fun yeah to play a push your luck game like that i feel like this is already going in a direction where like replayable games are fun and good right (laughs) good yeah we've covered a lot of ground okay So maybe we forge ahead. Yeah, let's move on to the next one, which is variable setup. So what comes to mind for you when you put this on the nose? Well, it turns out that a game that is different every time, but has the same shared rule set, turns out to be a really replayable experience, right? Right. If I, the original sin of board games, more or less, is that I have to sit down and I have to spend oftentimes an equal amount of time learning the rules of a game as I will spend playing it for the first time. That's a huge barrier to entry compared to the other media we've already talked about on the show, right? Like I don't have to relearn how to listen to listen to music. I don't have to relearn to read to read a book. Wow, but somebody to play a wasn't game. a musical studies major in his shows. <laughs> you weren't either. <laughs> no, but... Okay, great. I take any and all shade, but... <laughs> I never list, learned to list how to listen the first time. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. That makes more sense now. But with board games, you you do have to invest the time. So I think variable setup is this incredible cheat code for getting different experience with the same core rules. So it it bends sort of the core drawback in some ways of board games. And it means that you can come back to that same well and have a meaningfully different experience. So you asked for examples. So I think these fall into roughly two categories for me in terms of variable setup. There's dissimilar scoring, where each time you play, the rules around how you might win the game are different. So two games that came to mind for me just right away uh, that I've played a lot of are cast, so they're replayable for me, are Cascadia, where the scoring cards are different every time, or Calico, a game where each player has their own unique scoring conditions on their board, but the puzzle is the same every time outside of the scoring. And then there's also dissimilar agencies, right? Variable asymmetric player powers, things like Zuvatis, where you all have a, a unique player power that you can use in negotiation, or Root, where you basically have a completely different game each of you are playing uh, in a shared space with similar rules, or a game like Cosmic Encounter, where you have a, a unique alien power that fundamentally breaks a core rule of the game. Uh, so I think both of those are examples of those sort of overarching categories of how games often do variable setup that lead to the games being different every time, despite mostly having similar rules. Do does just like a big deck of cards come in here as well? Like is does just general variability uh, a think- game, right? Where you draw a hand of cards like race for the galaxy right you're never going to even if just you're playing based race for the galaxy you're never going to play the same exact game twice i i think for me that's going to fall into our next category okay which is randomness which we'll come back to what do you think do you agree 
I mean, I think when you say variable setup, I think mm-hmm. part of what I hear is just variability, which is something sure. about a lot. Uh, and I think, yeah, randomness is sort of the thing that makes having a big deck of cards add variability to the game, but you still have to have a big deck of cards to be showing players different things for that randomness to really facilitate it. I think my differentiating factor, I I totally hear what you're saying, Jake. And I think that like in race, at least in the base game of Race for the Galaxy, right? The deck is always the same. A highly replayable game for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And for most, I think for many people, one of the eminent appeals of Race for the Galaxy is its replayability. It's quick and it's different every time. But I think that a huge part of that is not that it's a variable setup. Be- Though it kind of is. There's a glimmer. You're kind of getting different world to start with. Yeah, there's and a picking glimmer a different of it. hand to start with. Yeah, there's a glimmer of it. But it's not that the game it's itself got a is, sheen. <laughs> is <laughs> yeah, a sheen of it. But it's not different every time, more or less. It's more or less the same game, but you get to start with really different incentives. I think race blurs the line okay. in that way. I think for me, what I want to highlight about variable setup here, more so than like just the randomness that comes out of it, is that the game itself can be fundamentally different while having a shared rule set that makes it easier to play. So what makes it replayable is that you have a different, unique experience each time you play, slightly, right? And that that has other benefits in that sort of the the skill ceiling is higher or the agencies that you get to practice are different because your unique player power lets you do something fundamentally different in that game, right? So the appeal of it is different. I think for me, I hear what you're saying, but I think having a new hand of cards, a different hand of cards than I've had any time before in Race for the Galaxy at the start of the game feels like a dissimilar setup or variable setup or in like a game like bonfire i don't have a hand of cards but the way the board is seated is very is random right it's like different and i'm going to have to pick a new path through the game every single time or in bruges there's no variable setup on the board but everybody's going to start with a hand of five cards and similar to race right that to me feels like a variable setup outside of the two ways that you have laid out laid out of scoring or agencies it's kind of the same agencies but it's just like a new experience to go into Mm. this is a hidden third category that i'm gonna pivot uh different opponents in co-op games so one example of this is in spirit island there's right spirit island is this game where you each play as spirits defending an island and you all have your own unique powers uh within those spirits but then you can also play against different opponents, different colonizers who are coming to the island, all of which themselves have different powers. I think this is another variable setup that can keep things interesting, right? So if you really like playing as one of the one of the spirits, say Thunderspeaker or whatever, but you want to have a different experience, you can play against a different colonizer and have that game feel demonstrably different. And then there's a, a mix and match element to that that we'll get into later, right? Where there's like... you. All of a sudden, if you have different spirits and different opponents, the the number of different variants of what can exist just explodes into unique sort of gameplay experiences that you can have. Star Wars The Clone Wars is a new co-op game that has something similar where you can play against like Count Dooku or I haven't played it, so I don't really know. But like that's Darth just say, Vader. Darth, sure. General Grievous. Darth Small. I, I think actually, Jake, I'm going to correct you really quickly because I don't want you to get blown up in the comments. In Star Wars The Clone Wars, Darth Vader does not yet exist because he's currently Anakin Skywalker. But I hear your point. Yoda. <laughs> 
is not a villain. Yeah, I was trying that whole time. I was trying to think of another villain, but I couldn't. <laughs> For sure. But it's just like different... Anakin Skywalker. There you go. Who, no, a hero at this point, but yes. <laughs> so you see, technically speaking. <laughs> and I think this is sort of a, a twist on like, it's a little bit of a different dissimilar scoring a lot of co-ops don't have scoring but the victory condition might feel slightly shifted or the agency of what the game is doing to you sort of shifts yeah i different think challenge, also different. okay yeah yeah can i add one last thing yeah i think for me part of the fun of variable setups also is that different types of fun can exist within the same game rule set because of those different agencies that you might be given. So whether it's dissimilar scoring, like if it or dissimilar agencies, like unique asymmetric player powers, just the type of things you might experience end up being slightly different because of the combination of things in play. And I think that's key. The combination of things in play is what leads to the replayability. Yeah. I think like a deck construction game also could be like a dissimilar agency, right? I'm bringing a new deck to attack this game sure. differently. Yeah. Uh, so those those type of games tend to be highly replayable as well. To Magic people. the Gathering came to mind for me a huge amount in writing these notes just because of that. And yeah, I think every time you roll up to say like, oh, today I'm going to play like a green-white weenie deck or right. today I'm going to play blue control. Like you're playing the same game, Magic the Gathering, maybe in the same set, but it feels totally different in terms of what you're experiencing. Yeah. I think that's hugely a, a big part of it, yeah. And you have to ask who's the beat down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Let's it's talk Darth about Vader, randomness, right? please. It's always Darth Vader. <laughs> Darth Vader. <laughs> okay. You do randomness. I've been talking a lot. Okay. Well, we talked to already hinted that randomness is going to be a part of the replayability conversation. I think randomness is an important element because it makes the game exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, any a game that doesn't have randomness, though. As I say this, I immediately think of chess, a game with no randomness. That's probably the most replayed board game of all time. time. Um, I think having randomness makes a game exciting to go back to because you can't know for certain uh, what the experience is going to be. Uh, That's going back to can't stop. That's what makes us want to play can't stop again. It's not like doing the math. Uh, It's like rolling the dice and seeing what the result of our kind of back of the napkin calculations is. Yep. I think for me too, a huge part here, Jake, is we've talked about how interesting drafting games are to us uh, in terms of the replayability of them. You've played an immense amount of challengers. I've played an immense amount of challengers. I've played a ton of seven wonders we kind of sort of honed this idea that like, oh, it turns out we love to play drafting games a lot uh, on our last episode, Star Realms being another example. And I think a huge part of that is that randomness keeps the player on their toes, making interesting tactical decisions consistently. And in drafting games, that comes to the forefront of the decision space, right? It's fun to get better at making decisions in a game. It's even more fun to get better at making interesting decisions in the game when the decisions are always the same. And randomness just plainly and simply makes that possible. So if you have enough options and enough different outcomes, it's rare you'll ever get fully bored of a game, meaning it's probably going to continue to be replayable so long as it has another factor we'll talk about in a little bit, depth, because you're consistently being offered a new a new problem to solve yeah. and increasingly have tools to solve it. 
I think Challengers is a great example for this one because, so I'm glad you brought it up because I think what makes Challengers so replayable is that you have such limited agency and control over the drafting portion of the game. Mm. If you could see many more cards each time, I think the game would get duller faster because people would be playing the same type of decks more often or you'd always be able to build one of like two or three best archetypes where the game is fun is that you can't do that because you're constantly posed with challenges of like, well, the card I really want isn't here. So what is my next best option? Um, Yeah. Challengers is also interesting because the resolution mechanic is also so random, which makes it such that the right decision isn't often clear. Oftentimes a decision that, you know, maybe if a computer could get at the game of challengers, it could just analyze the whole card set, the whole position that you're in and say, oh no, you have to take, if you're offered heroin versus T-Rex in pack three, pack C, you take T-Rex. But when you're playing, maybe you say, oh, I don't know. It it feels pretty close. I guess I'll go into heroin because I think, you know, I want to try to get a couple, get a pair of it. You win because the game is random. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, oh, heroin is the right choice here every time. And it's just bias. And (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the uh, feedback makes it more that, but I think that's a good point. I think that, that's interesting because I'm not yeah. sure I necessarily agree that like cloudy feedback versus clear feedback makes it more replayable. Yeah, I think I think it works in challengers, but I think yeah. it, in another game, perhaps having clearer feedback would make it more replayable or yeah. less replayable. I don't know. I think it just also depends on the kind of player you are. That 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 feels like it speaks a little bit more to personal preference. Sure. To me. And your motivations, right? Le- the learning curve of, curve of the game, why you're there. Like it works in challengers, but we also like love challengers. Right. Where yeah. I think other people have bounced off challengers, making it not replayable to them for similar reasons. Reasons. It just feels like too random. I think that other games that came to mind to me of that are so replayable because of their randomness uh, in terms of games we've covered on the show and enjoy are games like Castles of Burgundy or King Domino or Welcome to where there's just this steadfast and wonderful puzzle at the heart of this game. And what makes that puzzle consistently interesting is that the input randomness keeps it fun. In, right, all, like, in all those games, it makes it so you can't always do like randomness what you prevents want. you from doing what you want. Yep. And that's what's most fun is figuring out like, okay, the backup plan. Yep. Like I want to start by getting these mines in Castle Burgundy, but I can't because I don't have the right numbers or somebody took them first. So now what? Yeah. I think too, in just sort of like riffing on a game I already mentioned, like Cascadia, uh, I mentioned the dissimilar scoring, the different animal scoring tiles. I think there, the puzzle of the animal scoring tiles is actually super straightforward. Like you can always just, you just look and you see what you can draft and get the most points of. But the terrain puzzle ends up being like really interesting from a randomness perspective where you don't necessarily know what you'll be able to pivot into or what animal tiles, uh, what animals might be on those terrain tiles in an interesting way. So it makes for an even more solid puzzle kind of layered over this more accessible sort of direct puzzle that might even lean into the kind of automatic decision space at times. Great. Let's let's go on to the next category. Okay. So this next card category is varied game arcs. So I think this is a really insightful and interesting one where the if a game plays out the exact same way every time in terms of the shape of the experience, you know, it's 
it's a 60 minute game and you're going to have the most exciting moment always at around the 35 to 40 minute mark. All of a sudden, I think that starts to be a little bit less exciting and a little bit less replayable than if it's a 60 minute game where sometimes in the first 10 minutes, you're going to have such a memorable experience that you're going to tell your friend about it three years from now versus sometimes the most exciting moment is the very final one, the reveal of who wins. And other times it's really the mid game where it's, it's the 30 minute mark where there's this pivotal weird interaction that's just funky and fun. I think varied game arcs keep games replayable in a way that maybe we, we haven't even talked about on the show a ton, right? There's things, the resistance comes to mind for me a little bit, Jake, not always completely, right? Because there's this really structured arc that that game tries to set based on the number of people that are going on missions, based on the player count. But I think at times, pivotal information comes out in different ways and there's funkiness around votes that can just kind of upend that game. And because even at the lowest player count of five, there's multiple spies. So there's this interesting potential intrigue of when is the one spy maybe going to throw the other spy under the bus, under a, under the bus, outing one another. I think this is really key. Codenames falls into the, this category for me too, in large part thanks to the assassin, the card that could be an auto loss. No two games feeling alike, I think is a huge part of what keeps games feeling replayable potentially. I think resistance is a great example, and especially when you're the spy, because it's a game where first to three that that team will win. So generally in the first mission, it's kind of like, yeah, it's good if your team wins. But if you're a spy and you're on that mission of three people with one other spy Mm -hmm. and you're kind of thinking about like oh which one of us is going to like throw in a a fail and then like potentially both of you do that's the game right then you've just lost in the first round because somebody like they know that two of those three people are 100 percent spies yeah so yeah it's funny how like navigating that could be like the pivotal most tense moment in that game where you play you know 10 other games of it and you won't have that same arc yep again when we played blood on the clock tower at uh geekway to the west jake it really sort of hit on this varied game arc replayability experience for me there's a lot going on right the variable setup in that game is wild but i think for me a huge yeah, part high, of- it was highly replayable because we kept messing it up <laughs> and having to replay it. oh my god we mess it up after that's, re- that's the hidden seventh factor how much is, how difficult is it to get the rules right but i think for me part of the varied game arc factor here is the ability to have memorable stories come out of the games that you play and for me a big part of games that are replayable if if i can play a game and come out walk away from it with a story that i'm going to tell my friends about that feels like a really good use of my time and it means i might be more likely to keep playing that game in search of more memorable stories so examples of this are like the resistance comes up again in this category cosmic encounter comes up for me in terms of memorable stories that i can share with people key keyforge is a great example where there'll just be wild interactions or wild decks that are like so interesting and fun where for years i would even just play online and i would maybe message you or message people in a discord and be like this crazy thing happened and i need to tell you all about it you know and part of what makes it replayable is chasing more crazy interesting things that i can then tell people this actually happened in the game can you believe it yeah you know totally i wanted just before we move on to the next one i want to linger on the co-op example again because we don't spend a lot of time talking about cooperative games on this podcast 
And I think it, I feel like this might be even more important mm, in co-op in games than in yeah. other forms of games, because in a lot, in a lot of co-ops, like e- even if it's not like a narrative game, it feels more like the story is important. Mm. And I'm thinking of games like, like the emergent story. Yeah. You mean right, the emergent the, story, the emergent story that you're telling like yeah. pandemic and like eons end uh, or, or whatever. And eon end is the one I wanted to specifically talk about because the first time I played that game, you know, and it feels like, oh, we're definitely doomed. It's over. We've lost. It's a disaster. And then you pull it out on like the last turn and the tides turn and then you win. You're Everybody's like high fiving each other. You're like, this is awesome. And then you play it again. It's like the exact same thing. You're like high fiving. Like, That's awesome. And you play a third time. And if it's like the exact same experience again yeah then you start like looking out of the corner of your eye like wait am i is like is this actually like a game that you can improve at and get better at and yeah. have different experience or is this just like a little bit on rails and yeah. i don't think that one is because you know you can there's a lot of different cards you can shift in you can up the the very the uh difficulty um and i think spirit island kind of falls in that too like at the easy difficulties it kind of has an inevitable power curve where you start out behind but by the end you're gonna steam like you know snowball and run away with it yeah so i yeah i think it's super important that co-op games think about and address this or else it feels too on rails i think this is a huge part of what makes board games potentially replayable too i think a lot of video games i know we're going to talk about them a little bit later if we have time tend to be a little bit more scripted uh, whereas with board games, part of the fun is the potential chaos of like feeling like anything could happen. I think that even, Jake, in terms of varied game arc, a game that came to mind to me when I was writing these notes, which is so interesting because it's such a structured gameplay, sort of like almost on rails experience, is Imperial 2030, um, where our play of that when we played it, I felt I could imagine even though it's a rondelle game where you have to make the same decisions in roughly the same order each time, potentially skipping ones and having meaningful sort of passing on whatever you do could have played out so differently in terms of where the, the pivotal conflicts happen that could completely reshape everything and completely reshape the tension around ownership of certain countries and, and, and all of that in a way that makes me want to play it again because I just playing it once felt like and, and saw oh, this gameplay art could be so different, you know? Yeah, totally. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Being able to visualize a different gameplay arc and be like, I want to try that. Yep. That is something that will get it back to the table. Totally. Let's go to the next one, which is interaction, right? So this is, I think I accidentally dipped into this earlier, but this is this variance without randomness. So Boom. like Castles of Burgundy, it's not randomness if somebody takes the mines before you and forces you to do something else. That's interaction, baby. Yep. And chess. There's no randomness in chess, but it's different every time two people play because you make very different decisions in terms of your opening moves and how you react to what your opponents do that mean that the problems that you're asked to solve in a given puzzle are really different. And I think Jake and I are going back to chess a little bit in terms of this episode as an example, because I think it feels a little bit like a, an anomaly in terms of the structure of that game and why people come to it. We'll talk about it again later in terms of like competitive motivation and structure. I, I do think in some ways it's like an exception it's that like proves a cheat. the rule type yeah. of thing, like which is a saying I've never understood in full disclosure. Like, what does that even mean? 
an exception that proves the rule. Yeah. Yeah. It feels that's yeah. It feels a little. I feel like that's like highfalutin there. Yeah. It's just like so dismissive of like a strong like counter example. Sure. 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 <laughs> like, like, yeah. Like I can't understand that. So I just like that just proves what I was saying even more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that for me, Jake, interaction is this incredible vehicle for replayability because the games agencies and skill become so focused on not understanding the sort of the the mechanisms themselves right like what are the probabilities around this certain thing that i'm speculating on in the game paying out and points at coming to fruition versus what do i think jake is going to do in terms of when he's under pressure being threatened by two different players in the corner of the board right like it, it shifts from this purely mathematical sort of approach to games which jake and i can both love like Castles of Burgundy is a pretty mathematical game that we both really enjoy. But when you shift towards something like Guards of Atlantis 2, where it's a tabletop MOBA game all about what people are going to do and reacting to what people do, I think it makes it even more replayable because you're trying to understand another human being and exploit that understanding. These are the types of games that I tend to really enjoy. So that's my bias kind of coming to the forefront. But I think that's interesting. Understanding other human beings is interesting. And if games end up being a meaningful vehicle for doing that, that can be a lot of fun. I agree with you to an extent. Like, I think when people say this game is multiplayer solitaire, which is something that I, you know, honestly, more often than not think is a silly thing to say. Dismissive, yeah. Yeah, dismissive thing to say. But I think that's coming from a place of saying like, this game doesn't have enough interaction for me to find it replayable, which is a totally fair sentiment to express. People will have, you know, everybody's different and how much interaction you want in a game to be replayable is also going to span the spectrum. For me, Castles of Burgundy has plenty of interaction in that we're competing in a shared marketplace for the same tiles. If Mm. you take a tile that I want, I can't have it. I have to change my plans because of something that you've done. And it may not be like, and and, you know, in in the same way that you're trying to like understand if you're going to attack or defend on a move in Guards of Atlantis, I on a previous term have to decide like, are you more likely to be, you know, trying to compete for the boat majority or the field majority? And what tile is that going to make you more likely to pick on your turn, which is going to inform my choice? I think it's playing in the same space. It just feels like more indirect or direct. But whatever way you want your interaction, I think a replayable game needs some of it yep. in, a, in the board game setting. Yeah, interesting. Well, I don't know if I totally agree because I could like replay Welcome to Solo forever. Yeah, I mean, and like video games like Tetris, right? Sure. That's, that's not, that's a, a super replayable game with no interaction. And no variability, but high randomness. I think if you lose the interaction, you need high randomness, you know? Yeah, you just and, need something. And maybe it's just that like, I think an idea we come to a lot in these conversations are like, these are all things that make it more likely to have replayability, but it, nothing is going to be like completely prescriptive. You know, probably the more of these things that exist in the game, the more it'll feel replayable to like a larger subsection of board gamers. Yep. 
this point of not all games need all these factors. And it's also a matter of taste, what type of games you're going to gravitate to, right? Like some people prefer less randomness in their games, so they might like more interaction. Some people like less interaction in their games and they might like more just sort of core random input output randomness mechanisms, you know? Another thing is, Jake, I think that for me, Barrage is a perfect example of interaction leading to this like interesting vari- variance without randomness, where when I'm playing this like strategy Euro game and someone makes a what seems like kind of funky decision to me, there's still so much agency and skill in that game of figuring out how to navigate around that weird decision that it keeps the decision space really compelling and interesting because I have the ability to react meaningfully to weird decisions perceived by myself to be weird. Uh, And then knowing within that ecosystem that kind of bubbles to the top and is created through that to know that you have a different puzzle to solve every time, right? Like a lot of these things like interaction, variability, and randomness are all the same thing. Is there a different puzzle to solve in this game every time? There you go. That's, That's the crux of this, right? So with interaction, the different puzzle comes from every time you play a game with new players, it feels a little bit like a new game because the agency is so high. This is really interesting because I think this gets me to start thinking that like, perhaps there's like subsets of like replayable games Mm. and like Tigris and Euphrates and castles of Burgundy and guards of Atlantis two and chess are all over here. Yeah. And Tetris Mm. is, you know, in, or, some other, you know, it may be um, cooperative games, right? And to some large extent are, are doing something different to be replayable. Because of the randomness versus player interaction? Just because of like the the different puzzle to solve. Like, t- okay, I shouldn't have thrown in cooperative Tetris game. is the same puzzle every time. Tetris is always the exact yeah. same puzzle yeah. where all these other things are p- pulling in different elements that, to your point, which I think is a very good one, are creating a different puzzle to solve. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, Tetris is just Tetris. <laughs> Dude, but it's a another really exception, good... but it totally proves everything we're saying. Just trust me. Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> Do you think, okay, so that's... It is a video game. It is, it is. But I think even Tetris on the table, I I, I don't know. I think you could make some pretty interesting decisions. My city is like pretty dang not interactive. But so replayable. (laughs) Highly replayable. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's pivot away from interaction because I think we kind of covered it. Though, of course, like the knowledge of past behavior of your opponents in interactive games makes playing those games... Even more, replaying them, more interesting. I think that's a factor with interaction as well. Before Part we of- get, oh, sorry, finish. Mm. You can finish that. I would say before we get to the very like last one. Yeah, I've been like, I had a really interesting question that I came okay. up with, and then I forgot it, and I've just been like for like fifteen minutes, and like it? on the tip of my tongue, and I remembered it. Good. What is so it? That's a teaser. We'll get to it after we finish this last category, which okay. is depth. Did you write it down? Yeah, I wrote it down. Okay, thank goodness. I don't have edit access to your notes somehow, oh. Oh, so I had no. to type it somewhere else, but I have it. <laughs> okay, thank goodness. Okay, so the final category is depth, right? A simple game uh, that isn't very deep might have interaction, it might have randomness, it might have a variable setup, and it might even have non-automatic decisions. I'd have to think more about that. But if a game doesn't have depth, it's not going to be very replayable. 
so I think what like we mean by depth here, strategies in Tetris are just yeah nuts. I think it's depth here, right? Means, well, I think that actually there's a quality there, Jacob, in terms of setting up combos in Tetris. Oh, okay, all right, hey, okay, but it's not a game that's not easy to grok or solve. That's mostly what I think Jake and I mean here when we're talking about death, because this isn't an episode about death. We can't just go super deep on what we mean. It's a game that's hard to fully grok, a game that's hard to fully understand, and it's a game that's unlikely to become stale in terms of the decisions themselves. Yes. I think for me personally, the thing that makes me replay games the most is a feeling like I'm getting better at it. There's more to learn. There's more to learn. And I think depth is the main thing that facilitates that. If if uh, I think it's really closely tied probably to the non-automatic decisions because yep. the reason depth would become an issue, right, and become something that prevents replayability is if I feel like the game is solved for me. Kind of like what you're feeling with villagers. Perhaps mm. to you, I might say that's less an issue of like automatic decision, but that like you feel like the game is kind of shallow. Yeah. And that's why that's the decisions true. have like become rote. Yeah. I think you that's know, really I disagree fair. with that. I like challengers. You mean villagers? Yeah, shit, yeah. villagers. Yeah. I like challengers too. Okay, <laughs> I love I love challengers so much. It's just like coming out it on just comes out. Yeah. <laughs> Another so also here right. There's potential for depth through like it's just a massive decision space. Like a game like Feast for Odin, which has over seventy worker placement spots or something like that, right? Or Agricola or Keyflower, whatever. Or there's huge mechanism overlap slash interaction. So with that, I'm I mentioned spare I want to mention Spirit Island again, a game where the depth comes in part from I could be playing one spirit, Jay could be playing another, our friend John could be playing another. And then every time we play, if we all switch, the number of combinations and the way those powers interact is just really deep and interesting and meaningful. And then you add on top of that whatever the opponent we're playing against and then all of a sudden it just explodes combinatorically into this wildly deep decision space that's interesting and meaningful and i think that all of those are key factors and we can't really go that much deeper on depth in an episode about replayability besides saying that like depth matters and if the game one thing that can make a game really replayable is if there's a lot to understand about it and that's really feels obvious and like we could take it for granted almost but i think it's important to say i'll add one other thing about depth which is how i think it kind of uh interacts with the variable setup and like variability we're talking about before where i think a game like root or Mm -hmm. a game like garden Minus two has had you know it has a lot of depth within each of those dissimilar agencies you know the setup differences Mm -hmm. because like they almost make you want to like main a character Mm. you know where it's like oh i like i really like playing the medusa character in guards of atlantis 2 you know when we played it we've only played it a few times but it was like i want to keep playing this character because like i like learning better how to use the this stuff and i think you know root i don't know that i think the culture of root or whatever is people are like to shift around a lot but you could do the same thing right you yeah, could like, just play really crows. play crows and like really like figure that out and yep. you know or like with magic or whatever like you go deep in like a certain strategy or tactic yep. and i'm gonna be know that has a lot of depth whereas a game we just talked about santa monica has like variability of end game scoring like dissimilar scoring 
but we didn't find that changed the decision space, meaning like it didn't feel like I think that is kind of a way to put some of our, I don't know, criticism feels strong, but you know, our feelings towards Santa Monica's endgame scoring is like, yes, it adds variability, but it didn't have like it didn't pack the punch of like extra depth, meaning we yeah. just didn't really it didn't feel like it was adding that much to make us like go back to the game to play the different things more. And I think I, for me, the Cascadia animals kind of a little bit like, yeah, it's adding a ton of variability, but it's still sort of the same puzzle each time. Yeah. Teach their own. What's your question? Hit me with it. Okay. I think this kind of fits into uh, our, does replayability even matter? But I was thinking about this, which is like the games I play the most so i thought about it because of your definition which i'll remind the listener a game that players can repeatedly play without tiring of the experience of playing it and i when i was thinking about that it's like you know what the games i get the most tired of are the games i play a ton Mm. (laughs) and so i like don't know what to do with that but like you know like monikers uh is a game i gave away because everybody always wanted to play it and so it was like a game that like, yeah, it, and I had fun when I played it. It was like always coming to the table, like the same with like Catan. Like I played it like a hundred mm. times in college and now I like choose not to own it because I feel like I've exhausted that space. But like a lot of games that I might hold up now, like in this conversation, like, oh yeah, dude, like, I don't know, Barrage is like endlessly replayable. But I can't really say that if I had played Barrage a hundred times, I wouldn't feel exactly the same way that I do about Catan towards that. I think for you, Monikers and Catan, Catan were highly replayable games that eventually you've played enough of, you know? So I got tired of it. So yeah. it doesn't fit your definition. Okay. No, it does. Because the add-on to the definition, highly replay- replayable games without tiring of them after X amount of plays, whatever. Like Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. All okay. right. Like, oh yeah, no, I agree. Like, but it's, I mean, it's like kind of, I think there's like, it is sort of interesting where it, no, it is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you for, we can move on with the conversation. Well, now. <laughs> I think that, well, let me comment. Let me comment. I think there's this nuanced difference between like a game I would want to replay endlessly and a game I do and then get tired of. Right. Where those are different things where like you've played Katana a hundred times or whatever. And I've probably played Katana a hundred times or whatever, but I don't want to play it a hundred more times in my life. Right. But I'm happy I played it a hundred times. And there are games I've played a hundred times that I do want to play yeah. more of like magic, yeah. the gathering. Sure. So, yeah. you know, I feel like that is a game that I could say is like, yeah, more, both of them are obviously like replayable games. I know I'm being like a little bit silly, but, but one of them really fits that like, truly like i keep playing this like never get tired of it although if i I played only magic gathering for you know the way i was playing it previously maybe i'd get tired of it again do you think you'd be willing to play so like monikers one of the things is it comes with a box of cards and you kind of start to learn what's in the box in terms of the cards that are there do you think if your same friend group was like let's stop playing monikers but let's play celebrity and we'll just write whatever we want on the cards every time would you be interested in it or is it that the experience itself i I would rather i think play something else okay but definitely part of it that's a good point definitely part of it is like no variable setup there has something not definitely not to the extent of cards against humanity where it's like yeah (laughs) like it's just like handing players jokes but there is definitely something about monikers being like oh this is like so funny that they put like this person or like thing in the game so like once so they're like they're handing you punchlines 
in like a very like you know kind of like a hidden way you it's know like, it makes your group feel like oh we're like making these jokes and like we're so clever and funny but it's like that's like a very designed experience yeah it's kind of like narrative in books right where like it's about the surprise being gone from the box yeah 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 okay. something about like where it's like monikers it's like yeah it's like so funny that we like came up with like this combination this combination or like this like charade for this topic which of course like probably like somebody was intended intended for you to do yeah. it and have that experience and it's still a fun experience but anyway that's my monikers rant okay jake yeah does okay uh, one what's the difference between a replayable game and a good game okay that's a great question i think like there can be board games that fit into like the book category of like i've played it what a great experience and i don't feel like i need to go back to it yeah i'm trying to think of examples of that now but i feel like there's like definitely i've had experience like playing games especially games that like i get to the end of and i'm like i feel like i like accomplished what i wanted to accomplish in the game and people will like maybe rightfully like criticize that and say that's well that's like not a good game then if you could like do all that everything that you wanted but if i had like a really satisfying like fun experience with it in that play i think it still like can be a good game that i don't need to play more yeah i could imagine a game that was really socially intense to play that uh, made me feel interesting things and maybe sort of reflect in interesting ways about the experience of playing it being a game that i thought was a really good game that i didn't need to go back to and replay a lot alice is alice is missing is a recent one i played Mm. with my laughing table friends game group that was like awesome i love my but you don't but need I to. don't need to to feel like that was well worth the time and effort and like I've had the Alice is missing like experience that I wanted to have. Yeah, I think there's a lot of long games. I know I said I wanted to replay Imperial 2030 on the show and I still do. But I think that's an, another game that I think it's a good game that I'd, I'd also be happy not replaying it. If I, I see it on myself and yeah. I certainly haven't been like real motivated to be like, I w- so the laughing table friends game group we have five members and we sort of rotate through like who gets to pick yeah and I, my turns come up a few times since then and i've looked at it and been like something else <laughs> yeah yeah but you enjoyed your experience yeah totally totally yeah. and i do want to play it again like intellectually yep but then it's tough but then you know when i'm looking at my game shelf and like what of these things do i most want to get to the table it's not it hasn't been that one yet not and i think never will be a lot of that too is like the opportunity cost of how long it takes to play a game how different you feel that different experiences of it could be there's a whole lot there yeah we just talked about six different factors that could play into that yeah yeah. (laughs) another thing that we didn't talk about is potential for like gimmick experiences and i use gimmick uh, in a positive way here more or less or in quotes so things like the mind where it's a really novel experience you can have with a group of people but playing it with the same group of people over and over again might not be as fun as playing it with different groups of people more than once and showing them like hey there here's this neat thing we can do yeah and Somebody, uh, I, somebody brought that up in our uh, Discord. Uh, I would love to say who it was, but I think that's a really great point. Where, yeah, I think they were talking about QE specifically, and that being a game they love to show to new groups of people, but playing it 
with the same group multiple times, it like loses for them that magic of like sort of like learning together and just like seeing what people do with like the crazy possibility of bidding any number you want, any number at all. Yeah. And that has the thing where the more you play it with one group, the more you build a standard of like how much things should go for. So the novelty of it kind of wears off. Yeah. The mind fits in there too. Yeah. I think escape room games deserve a mention here somewhat for a similar idea, but the gimmick is just you're not knowing the puzzles that are contained within the box. It's not that much fun to solve the exact same puzzles multiple times. Whereas, so these are really fun games that you don't really want to real play. They can also be really good games that make you have a really fun time playing them or give you memorable stories or make you want to show them to other people in terms of saying, hey, you should play this but aren't things that you can replay multiple times because they're not really made to be. There's narrative elements there too. I looked up, it was Matt in the Discord. Nice, okay, awesome. Brought us that insight about QE. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. So does replayability even matter is another question that got posed to us. Yes and no. I think it just like all media, it depends. So that's not dwell on it, right? Like there's certain (laughs) games where I think by nature of games themselves, I want my games to be replayable. We talked about that at the start of the show. I'm more interested in a game that the 10th time I play it, I find I'm able to grapple with and have more meaningful interaction with the decisions I'm making than the first or second or third or fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh or eighth or ninth time. But at the end of the day, there might be a game where what it offers in one play is so fun and so interesting and so meaningful that it doesn't matter that I don't want to replay it again. It just depends. But on average, yeah, I want my games to be replayable. It's a huge part of the appeal. I'll take it from a slightly different angle. I think we can get a little bit caught up at times and thinking like everybody uh, who listens to this podcast is as obsessive with us or maybe like has chosen to spend as much disposable income on buying games. If you have uh, a handful of games or perhaps only space in your apartment for like five to 10 games, it matters a lot more probably. And if yeah. you're okay with, you know, if you have space for a hundred games uh, <laughs> and more coming in than going out, unfortunately, then it's, it can be much more okay or even a benefit to, to feel like, a, you know, I would like the whole legacy conversation where, it, you know, it's not about, oh, you can only play Pandemic Legacy 10 times. It's like, this is a game you'll actually play 10, ten times. times. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point, Jake. But I would also say it doesn't matter in the other sense that like ever to my point, like the games that I play the most, eventually I'm probably going to get tired of damn near anything Yeah, uh, if I'm playing it over and over, which makes me think like it maybe doesn't matter as much as like as we might think. I, I feel like a big part of this hobby, too, is like searching for the ideal game for like every Mm. situation. Like we're always on the hunt for like the perfect, like most replayable game. But because of that hunt, (laughs) even once we have it, we're still going to be trying to find the better version of it and like playing new stuff when it comes out anyway. Yeah. So as long as there's like awesome games coming out and people to, to play them with, that makes replayability of any one given game matter a lot less. Yeah. Well said, Jake. Okay. Another thing that amplifies or potentially impacts replayability is competitive motivation and structure. We'd be remiss not to mention... You don't have to linger on it, but yes. No, almost any game can be replayable if you care about the 
uh, additional impact of winning or losing based on a structure affixed to that game. I care about Seven Wonders more because I like to see my ELO go up on board game arena than I would if I would, didn't care about that. Yeah, ex- external influences outside of the game yeah. can matter. Yeah. I think I could be wrong about this, but I doubt many people who are professional poker players think Texas Hold'em is like the most interesting fun game fun game that they would like to play casually with friends yep. but people endlessly replay texas hold'em because it's their job yeah. uh, because they can make lots of money playing it you can get on tv and become a famous poker player and write a book about your poker skills and strategies you know all of those are things that are external to poker yeah. that make it more replayable to many many people yeah well said okay Jake, I don't know if we have time to talk about video games we'll and just legacy. Touch games. on it like super duper fast. Okay, okay, okay. We're fine. We've what, we got an yeah. hour in. Yeah, we we got ten minutes. If you have ten minutes, I absolutely do. Okay. So uh, the last two things in the notes to Jake's to the, at this point are just legacy games and video games, and I think they're grouped together for me in my mind because a lot of what these games and the replayability of them is kind of. Sh- shared though video games are often way more replayable than legacy games legacy games are kind of this like thing in board games that jake has alluded to where the the replayability of it is you want to get to the end you want to finish the experience you want to experience all of the narrative that are there or in a game like my city experience the new rules every time you play it or in even in a game like pandemic legacy right it changes over the course of the play so a huge part of the replayability in those games are the motivation. It's it's the same thing why people have a hard time stopping books that they start, even if they're not enjoying the books halfway through. It's the desire to get to the end to have a definitive experience as perceived by whoever is in that position in the first place, right? When, you know, it's complicated. I think my con- definitive experiences of reading A Confederacy of Dunces, Jake, since we're just, we're having lots of asides on media, is that like I got a third of the way into the book and was like, this isn't worth my time. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, that happens with legacy games. I, it almost fits in like the external like thing too, where it's like outside of the core game, there's something that makes you want to go back to it, right? There's like mm. the next envelope to, <laughs> to open, open to see yeah. what's in there, what's going to happen next. Um, that is going to literally, at least for me, be an external factor that's going to like elevate it on myself of like, what game should I play tonight? Well, it's like, well... Like this is the one we're like in the middle of. I am a TV series finisher. My wife is a TV series like starter and like jump arounder. Mm. So we'll always, you know, what do you want to watch tonight while we eat dinner? Uh, And I'm always like, well, we should like keep watching the show we started. And she'll be like, oh, well, you know, I'm not really in the mood to watch that show. But I think for the same reason that I want to like get to the end of a TV series for once, like legacy games have that increased replayability appeal. Yeah, totally. Okay. All right. And lastly, for the last five minutes, we're going to talk about why video games are so damn replayable. (laughs) Well, where do you want to start? Okay. So I, I mean, video games, I think are more replayable in part just because there's way less burden to start playing. Mm. If you have like a phone app, you know, you can just do it. There is no, you know, you could be like literally on a, a call at work and like, like I just like do this game on my phone. I would never do that. Sure. 
nor would I recommend it, but I know people do it all the time. Like there's just, you could never do that with a board game. Like I can't just be like on a, on a work call and I just like am setting up and playing a board game with three friends. So it's like easy. Yeah. It's, it's easy to replay them. The barrier to playing the games is lower. They're like, yeah, they fit into our whole world and environment seamlessly. Okay, so I want to follow up on that point. So video games have, quote, like, I'm going to call it self-governance, right? Like, they they implement the rules of the games themselves. When you go to play Mario, you don't have to know that Mario can only jump, you know, X number of pixels. Mario just always jumps X number of pixels. So I think that for me, one of the things that makes video games really real playable in a way that's at odds with board games is that when I go in to play a board game, I have to fully understand the rules, right? I have to, as players at the table, we have to have perfect governance of what's there. At least that's the goal. Whereas with video games, you don't because they're self-governing. So it's a system that I could go in and explore. And instead of pursuing just mastery, like I would with a board games, making optimal decisions within the rules that I understand with video games, oftentimes part of the replayability for me is understanding. It's my chipping away at my understanding of the rules that will help me master the game. It's that like, becomes fun. It's like it it takes the burden of learning the rules off of the player's shoulder and like inserts that as added depth. Yeah, 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 totally. You know, like the rules become depth in the game that you're like slowly well figuring said. out as you play, which makes it immediately easier to get started and in some ways more fun to replay. More fun, more replayable than many yeah. video games. All a big part for me too is just I, I know we both feel the same way, but like mastery of it that gets the same with like mastering the jumps that Mario's able to do. Yeah. In fighting games, a genre that we both like. You like Pokin. I like Super Smash Bros. Yeah. There's just like infinite room to get better technically at like performing what's in your brain, what you would like to do at the same time as like you can also improve like your knowledge and like understanding like as you're getting better at like physically executing things in the game, you're also getting better at like knowing what you want to and should execute and even like are able to imagine new things to do with your character totally. in different situations. Other humans can do this thing in this game. I've seen it and I want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, and I'm so it's like replaying it until I can do it. So it's like mastery is happening on all different levels where yeah. in board games it's only happening on the intellectual level. It's not like often execution. Imagination. Yeah. Yeah. Almost Outside never. of like a dexterity game. A dexterity but, game, yeah. right. I think a huge part, this video games is such a broad category that it's really hard to, but a huge part of it too is potentially with narrative video games, something that you have that's different in narrative video games than say like a book is, or a movie is different endings based on player decisions or within the game throughout. or plot points, right? Totally. So my decisions within the game will change the narrative that plays out. I want to replay it more to better understand how my decisions impacted the narrative that I then get to experience as a player. Skyrim is a narrative game, but it has a plot where you can like sort of join either of two sides Mm. in like a global conflict. So that makes it replayable. Also, you could do it as a wizard or an archer or a warrior. And those are going to give you like different agencies in the game as you choose your side as well. Totally. More replayability in a very similar way that we talked about earlier in board games. Yep. No, definitely. And I think that a huge part of that too is just like potentially 
one thing. So there's one of just, if you just did it back to back to back, that's one thing. And another would be as human beings, we have bad memories. So if you experience a, a, a video game or a piece of media and you sort of say, oh, that was really interesting and fun. Maybe a few years later, because I forget all the nuances, I go back and replay it. And then it's a little bit different the next time. And I think that's the same thing with with puzzles in a game and also could be the same thing in board games, right? Like if I play the Castles of Burgundy and I don't play it for three years, maybe I want to go back to it and experience it again because I don't remember how to make all the decisions in it. Um, but I think it's fun to have a similar, to like replay a plot or experience in a board game when you've forgotten some of it in the same way. And you know it might be exactly the same if you make all the same decisions. Last thing I'll say about video games is I think like the feedback loop can be like so much Fast. faster yeah. and more efficient. If I'm playing Smash Bros against a friend, I lose. Okay, they play another game, it takes two minutes, I lose. I play another game, it takes two minutes, I lose. I play another game, it takes two minutes, I lose. I play another game, it takes two minutes, I win. You know mm. what I mean? That's like, I've played, you know, five full experiences and seen like tremendous personal growth in 15 minutes on the couch. That's like equivalent in some ways to playing like five hour long board, board games, games across five yeah. different evenings. So that's really satisfying, you know, and it's not... I feel like a lot of this is coming across as us saying like video games are better. They're not. <laughs> like, we don't have this... a podcast about video games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're, they're very different. But like I think replayability is something that like video games just the medium of it like excels in. It's so important for board games compared to films. But like perhaps video games is even like further on that spectrum. I think At least in the not like the Mario's of the world, not necessarily the like a uh, super narrative game. Sure, sure, closer sure. to a book. Totally, I think a huge part of that too, Jake, is just thinking about all the factors that we laid out. Just to as we close the show, mention them: depth, interaction, varied game arcs, randomness, variable setup, non-automatic decisions. I think with video games, the fact that they are self-governing and in the way that board games aren't means that the potential for complexity and depth is just so high. Because the burden of players having to understand everything when they start playing isn't there. So I think of things like Dota, Defense of the Agents, Dota 2. And there's just the replayability is just so massive because the game, even compared to the most complex board games, is like astronomically more complex. It and and the replay, like the amount people play these games yeah. is like so mind-bogglingly yeah. large. Like I remember seeing some league of legends video just talking about like just the number of like human hours mm, of like billions. time played in it yeah. was, is like you know like oh I, I i'll misquote it but you know they're talking about like how long like how much labor and hours it took to like build the pyramids at giza and like yeah like league of legend players would have done that like 10 times over like yeah. last march or something totally totally <laughs> yeah, no. like uh, so I, very yeah. replayable <laughs> I've played defense. I just checked because, you know, we're recording at our computer setups. I've played Dota 2. I haven't played it in years. The last time I played it was 2016. So it's been seven years recovery. Um, but I've played it 480 hours. So, you know, that's over. That's almost a month of my life. Maybe it's more. I haven't done the math, but I don't know of a board game I've played for almost 500 hours. Yeah. So video games are good at it. And I think there are <laughs> lessons to be learned as we continue to think about board games and design them uh, in the ways that they can excel in replayabilities or not. 
and why it maybe doesn't really matter as much as we might like think. to think. Um, I think I'm going to call this episode replayability and why it doesn't matter as like a little homage to our friends at the So Very Wrong About Games nice. podcast. Uh, what do you think about that? I think that's a great idea. And I think okay. ultimately, you know, th- let's close on this idea, Jake, right? Like, would you rather have a game you could have an incredible experience playing one time or a game that you have to play 10 times to really have an incredible experience? I don't know. Oh, that's a tough one. I, I As you started the question, I thought I was going to be like, I'll slam the one good experience. Yeah. But I think because of my own like penchant for like wanting to learn, yeah, I think I'm gonna get that more out of the ten plays. I mean, I'm, I'm, obviously, if it's not like if it's like terrible plays, like in it, you know, one it, through it, nine, yeah. I need more variables. Are we talking yeah. like a four hour game? <laughs> no, 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 no. Forty minute game, forty five minutes, forty five minute game, like a seven that rises to a ten. Yeah, or. or 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 like a seven a, that rises to a ten. Yeah, that's called that. That's interesting. I, I think I would. I think I would even take like a seven that rises to a nine mm. over like a nine point five. I I guess with a I one just, play. I I, I yeah. feel like in that growth, like that's what I want. Totally. That, you and I are so biased because I also am just like I got this group to play a game with me ten times. <laughs> 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 this <right>. is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Great. Great question. I think that's an awesome question for listeners to weigh in on too. And I think we should call it there for this discussion about replayability. We'll call it there for the podcast. But of course, as we mentioned, the really rich stuff, the really good insights is coming from the listeners and friends in the Discord. So if you're not already in there, get in there. We would love to have more voices uh, to weigh in and tell us what's what about replayability. Also, Jake, you know, curates a an Instagram on decision space called decision space. It's actually just search decision space on Instagram and you'll find it. You should follow it. He works hard on it. He posts stuff there. Sometimes I should post some stuff there sometimes too. I probably will increasingly as I play more things in person that I are beautiful to photograph. So check us out there. Check out more. Uh, If you enjoy our show and you want to support it financially so we can do more cool stuff in the future, check out decision space podcast.com slash Patreon. It's been a while since we got a new Patreon. So if you're at all inclined, that always makes us super happy. You know, yeah. and we're just talking about like three, five dollars a, a month, you know, the the price of a, a coffee at Starbucks, not even. Totally. That would be awesome. The show is still in the red because we love to make it and we do it because we find it to be fun and enjoyable and we want it to exist. Uh, and if you want to help us move it slightly out of a thing that costs us money to something where we break even, we would super appreciate it. If you're still listening to this now, you're the kind of person we're counting on. Totally. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. No pressure. And then also thank you to Hembry for their hit song, Reach Out, which we use as our intro and outro song. And then also you've listened this long. You should know we're, Jake and I are playing games like Heat. And Ticket to Ride, if I can twist Jake's arm, yeah. I think we should cover on the show. For sure. That'd be fun. We are the Train Game Podcast, so it's probably time we color- cover a real train game. All aboard. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Goodbye. Have a good night, y'all. Bye. Bye.